During the following hour, KGLP is presenting audio from the New Mexico Department of Health COVID-19 update that we recorded on Thursday. David R. Scrace, MD, Acting Cabinet Secretary of the New Mexico Department of Health, hosted this news conference. The full video may be seen on Facebook. Look for NMDOH. My name is Jody McGinnis-Porter, and I'll be moderating today's press conference. At this time, I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Scrace to go through his presentation. David? Thank you, Jody. We've had some uh, very productive conversations. I'll give you a summary about where we're at with COVID and uh, some of the newer variants that you've already asked us in advance about. And then uh, I'm also going to give a little bit of an update on monkeypox because I know there's a lot of interest uh, among the New Mexico public and your readers, viewers, listeners uh, about that as well. So we'll try to make sure we cover that today as well. Um, the number of cases, PCR cases that are being reported is starting to fall off and that's really good news. So we're happy about that. And the modeling team met this week, kind of confirmed that they're seeing that in the future, the case counts coming down as well. Although you also may know, and we'll talk about this in a minute, we're cycling through an awful lot of Omicron variants uh, over the past several months. And so they're coming and going rather quickly, making it harder to predict. I think the other thing I just want to mention is for the first two full years of the pandemic, the CDC had 10 cases per 100,000 as a high level of community uh, transmission. And they relaxed that requirement to take it up uh, to 28 cases per 100,000, what we're operating at now. That uh, It's sort of a moot point this week because we're still above that line, but we're starting to see some softening in the case counts around the state and so we're not all red anymore when we look at community levels. Um, one thing that's interesting and positive and really makes a difference to me, I think if, if you remember in January, we sort of signaled to reporters and the public that we were gonna be paying a lot less attention to cases and a lot more attention to hospitalizations and deaths. And there were a lot of reasons for that. Uh, death rates among different variants were different. Uh, we were seeing, we thought a decline in the percent of people with some of the newer variants who were succumbing to their COVID infection. And we decided, and we also learned for the first, through the first two years of the pandemic that our biggest challenge was really our hospital resources. And so the CDC came to that same conclusion as we did. And so now, um, and I'll show you in a minute what it looks like, but I wanted to focus on the fact that, you know, we've been through a number of peaks. This, this goes back to September of 2021 and the big uh, Delta wave, the double peak Delta wave we went through. And then a, a fairly, uh, well, first, I'm sorry, first peak Delta, second peak Omicron, and then a relatively quiet period for hospitals with very low hospitalization rates. And then with um, the summer months and the surge that we saw, uh, you're seeing a, uh, an increase, but uh, my hospital colleagues tell me that they plateaued. Last month, their main problem was hospital workers getting sick, making it harder to provide service to uh, a larger volume of patients. 
they're also telling us that's coming down. But there's another thing here that's pretty cool and that worth noting. And that is, you can see that uh, uh, <clears throat> on the 13th, uh, which is yesterday, we had 176 cases and only 10 people on ventilators. That's only, that's less than 6%. And that, and, and it, you know, if you don't know this by heart, uh, we started the pandemic with as high as 20% of people being on ventilators and it's slowly come down. It was 10% during uh, the initial phase of Omicron, what we now call BA1. And, and now it's down even more below that. So what does that mean? In addition to not seeing the same number of deaths, we're seeing, it seems like we're seeing less serious disease. Now, that doesn't mean that the virus is getting milder, and we'll talk about that in a minute, too. What it means is the combination of, uh, uh, <clears throat> sorry, what it means is the combination of um, the characteristics of the virus, the number of people vaccinated, and people actually taking treatment has really, really improved. And so uh, I got a little text message that our, uh, our, our, our event rate yesterday might've been 22. There might be an error in the slide, so thanks for that correction. But nonetheless, clearly the trending in the past couple of months has been below 10% of people on ventilators, and we don't really react to that single data point. But uh, I've been watching this really closely every day, and uh, the, it appears that the combination of the evolution of the virus and the preventive and reactive measures we're taking to the virus when we all get sick is working and much, much less serious disease now than we've seen in the past. Dr. Grace, the 10 on ventilators was for July 7th. Oh, okay, I was going by the title of the graph. I'm sorry. Um, and then I just, I alluded to this, but here are the community levels in the United States by county. On the left, you can see the whole country and you can see that what, what was a red map just a month ago is now gradually softening, sorry, an orange map. I'm not good with colors. An orange map a month ago is now softening. We're seeing a lot of yellow and green. And even in New Mexico, we're seeing a lot of yellow and green. And actually, you know, we took a little bit of a, a detour or a deep dive into the Northwest, which is still orange. And why is that happening? Community levels are based on three things, the number of cases, the number of people in the hospital with COVID and the percent of people who are in the hospital who have COVID. And that uh, orangish, orangish red Northwest that includes Bernalillo and Socorro and Valencia counties is actually mainly driven by the number of cases, not hospital capacity, which seems to be holding up pretty well over the past couple of weeks. And so I'd encourage all of you to familiarize yourself with this website and we go by the CDC direction now, follow the CDC guidance because uh, on that same page and it's, it's here, uh, on the same page, you can find, what should I do if my community is green or yellow or orange? Um, some great questions from reporters. Thank you in advance about BA2. I'm gonna kind of start with the graphics and move my way uh, to the left with on the right-hand graph. This is the national prevalence of different variants as measured by a lot of different labs and, and especially important to include our own uh, state lab division here in New Mexico, the SLD lab of the distribution of variants. And I think you're also familiar that things come to New Mexico 
a little later, two to four weeks later. Then they come uh, to the East Coast and the West Coast, which is good because that's two to four more weeks opportunity for us to get really good data about what's actually happening. But you can see nationally that BA5 is by far the predominant variant, followed by uh, BA2.12.1 and then BA4. For epidemiologic purposes, we kind of talk about BA4 and BA5 because they're pretty similar uh, variants. And, and you, but if you go back to the left side of that graph, you can see we started off uh, not that long ago in early April, uh, BA1 was fading out. That was the January, a giant spike. And BA2 had taken over. Now BA2 is fading out. We had a period of BA2.12.1. And, uh, uh, and now we're mainly into BA4 and BA5. Uh, I read something in the paper uh, two days ago that now the latest variant is BA2.75. And I was wondering if we were moving to grade point averages. Uh, to describe the uh, variants, but that was just a little joke for my academic colleagues. Um, and then in the next graphic to the left of that, we have our table that we always show you about when a new variant comes out, talks about what we know and what we don't know. And so, um, you know, both of these, uh, the BA1 that we started with and the BA.5, uh, we showed you the BA 1.1, this table in January. Now we're showing you BA 5. It, it always starts out with us not really being sure of some things. Interestingly, uh, some people are predicting from out of Australia that the sp spread rate might be 18 times higher than the original um, strains we saw, which works out to two to three times higher. Actually, I suppose you'd say two to five times higher than the spread rate of Omicron in early um, January. And so, and, and I think you remember at the time, 8.2, we said, wow, that's almost as high as chickenpox, which is about nine. And so it's possible. And I don't really, I'm not sure I believe these numbers yet. They're purely estimates. They're not based on a lot of data, but I do believe that in actuality, we're looking at a fairly uh, uh, much higher spread rate that could even be higher than measles, which the, uh, our effective or that spread rate is 15. Measles was very infectious. And so, but I think this is a common sense sort of piece of information because at least most people I talk to these days, back in January, they said they knew more people with COVID in January than they'd known the whole previous pandemic. They said, we're saying the same thing in June and early July, and that's due to the ease at which the virus spreads. So bad news and good news, but exactly what we'd expect the virus actually wants to live with us. It, so it evolves over time to more easily infect people, but it reduces um, the number of people who are killed. And that's what we normally see in any kind of viral uh, spread or pandemic is that slight uh, decrease in severity of illness, but an increase in, infection, in infectiousness. And so, you can see that we know that BA5 already is resistant to some treatments. Uh, we don't know for sure if it's resistant to the vaccine, but we do believe that we're seeing a lot more breakthrough cases uh, now than we were in the beginning, which makes perfect sense. We're, you know, we have a two-year-old vaccine and and uh, that was uh, based on the very first strains of the virus, and and now we have you know dozens of evolutions of the virus. 
So we're seeing more breakthrough cases and counts, but less hospitalizations and deaths, which are the two primary things we're really looking closely at. So we're only up to 33% in New Mexico. Mike Edwards, our lab chief and director, tells us there's we're certain to follow the national curve. And so BA5 will be the most common variant early in August, following that sort of four-week delay uh, that we see from both the east and west coast for things coming to New Mexico. So news on vaccines, I think you all know this already, but there is a vaccine available for our kids between six months and four years old. Uh, we've already administered 2,464 doses. I did wanna give a shout out to some of our highest vaccine administ uh, administrators, to the ones who've given the most vaccines uh, for our kids in this young age group, Albertsons, one of our Albertsons that uh, had 372, so that's more than 10% of all the vaccines. Our public health division, stalwart public health heroes ready to adapt to any new permutation or mutation in the virus next to 254. And the Corrales Fire Department, who knew, uh, launched a big uh, vac vaccine campaign to vaccinate kids. So, um, you know, kudos to the Corrales Fire Department. If you know someone who works for them, they're probably too busy uh, putting on fires to watch this um, press conference, but let them know. We gave them a shout out today. And, and you know, you can see the one thing that I find most interesting about this is that, you know, the older people in New Mexico, 65 and older, the people I talk about, my people, because I'm a geriatrician, they've done really well on vaccines. I think more of them can benefit from the booster than have gotten it. There still is good protection for the booster. And also remember that other people are more susceptible as well. So maybe it's a grandparent, but it could be someone in your family that's in, you know, suppressed or someone who's undergoing chemotherapy. And, you know, we need to be really careful not to infect them. We still have many, many New Mexicans who are at higher risk for serious COVID and we do wanna take care for them. Uh, and we need to all work together and do our part to keep everyone safe. So you can go on to our websites uh, the government website and our New Mexico vaccine website to schedule an appointment for your child or for yourself for a booster, uh, whatever. And uh, we want to keep immunizations up. Uh, and speaking of that, I, I don't uh, think I have a slide on this, but just to preempt the question uh, that's coming up today, uh, and I don't have my little cheat sheet here, but there was a new vaccine announced this morning. But just so everyone knows, you know, we've been talking about the need for new vaccines and how great it would be if we had a vaccine that was more specific to both, um, you know, all, all of the Omicron variants or the Omicron, Omicron viral structure. This is not one of them. It's sort of an additional vaccine. It was first released, I think, November, December in Europe and it is now uh, being used and available in the United States. Uh, the one thing though, is if you're a person who's decided not to get the vaccine because of the way the, the vaccine is manufactured or concerned about fetal cells in the vaccine, 
even though most of these vaccines don't contain them. This new vaccine does not contain any of those products for sure. And so if that's been your last thing that was keeping you from getting vaccinated, now there isn't a good reason uh, for you. Now, other people still have valid reasons and uh, we're not saying anything about them, but if that was the only reason you weren't getting vaccinated, now you have an option, now you have a choice and, and please go ahead and, and uh, go online and learn more about how you can get that vaccine. Uh, of course, the thing is it's approved by the FDA not by the CDC, not by, um, not by uh, their committee that reviews the vaccines. So it's probably gonna be another week or two before it comes on the market, but um, uh, keep, keep your eyes uh, peeled for news from your local media folks about when that vaccine really is available. And of course, we'll have a press release when DOH is able to provide that as well. Next slide. And so, as I mentioned, uh, we really are looking at, uh, for the most part to do everything we can, uh, you know, to protect all of us. And, uh, you know, please be aware of the community level where you live. We have signs in our office about both the uh, community level and community transmission level. We follow both because we've got healthcare workers who work in our office here at the Human Services Department where I happen to be sitting today, you know, get up to date on your vaccines, consider those boosters. If you are um, having symptoms, get tested immediately. And you know, we had a big pitch for a really long time and you all did really, really well ordering those vaccines online. I'm sorry, ordering those test materials online. Our stack is dwindling, but I know at the DOH website, there's ways to replenish your supply every month. The federal government has a different schedule, but they've already sent out three sets uh, vaccines to those who apply. And if you if you never got any, you can sign up actually for all three of them. So that's a good thing. Uh, have those tests at home. If, you're, if your home test is negative, but you're still sick or getting sicker, you can test the next day. But if your symptoms persist, that's a good time to seek out PCR testing. And again, you can find that on our website where to schedule that. Treatment, really big deal, um, reduces the chance of being in the hospital by 89% for one agent, uh, another agent a little bit less, but uh, one test positive, one symptom, one risk factor equals treatment. And uh, we're doing well. We're over, we're cruising from 2,000, about 2,500 treatments a week. We can do even better with that, but you know, remember that one test, one symptom, uh, one risk factor. And remember, risk factors could be things like high blood pressure that a very high percent of people over 65 and 75 have. Although younger people have it too. And just being over 64 is a risk factor as well in that equation. And then remember the masks. You're, uh, I was on an airplane recently. I got a background thing going to keep the backlighting down. But I was on an airplane recently, still wearing an N95 on airplanes. Probably I always will. Uh, we wear, I wear that or my KN95 in the office um, when I'm with other people. And uh, another thing we can do to protect ourselves, but also people around us and much, much, much more effective masks than the ones we were using two years ago. I like to say that I had some conversations with reporters this week. You know, this is a completely and totally different pandemic that we were in two years ago. And while 
the case counts might be just as high as they were at some of our peak periods. Our hospitalization rates are incredibly low. Comparatively, our death rates have dropped substantially. We have vaccines, we've got treatments, we've got better masks. And so we're much better equipped to really fight this virus now than we've ever been before. Next slide. And then I'm going to, um, I'll speed up a little bit because we want to allow time for questions. A little bit on monkeypox. And thanks to Laura Parahone, who's our acting state epidemiologist. Thanks, Laura, for sending this information. And she updates me on a really regular basis on this. Uh, almost every state has a confirmed case of monkeypox. You can see here a few that haven't. Um, we test for this in our own lab. Um, we check test for the family of viruses, orthopox, cowpox, um, and smallpox, but smallpox has been eradicated. And so if we get a positive test of that history, we know the person has monkeypox. It's very rare. You're never, we're never going to have to need, I, I don't think, and there's a very low probability we'd have to mount an effort like we have with COVID. It was first discovered in 1958 with two initial outbreaks. And, uh, but more recently, it has been reported in several people in several different countries before we saw this outbreak. I think today, New Mexico has four cases uh, that we have uh, confirmed in our state. We do send them on to the CDC for confirmation. But because of the overall low number of cases, we are just going to rely, as we're doing today, on the CDC map to report this out. It's a pretty quick turnaround time once we notify them. And, and, uh, and so you'll see this uh, updated most days of the week now by the CDC. Uh, next slide. A few little tips. Uh, usually monkeypox starts with a flu-like illness like influenza, you know, with uh, sore muscles, maybe a cough, runny nose, plugged up head, um, and uh, <clears throat> fever uh, in some people, not in others. But the key factor really is the progression to this characteristic rash. Uh, often occurs on the hands, which is very characteristic, but can occur on other parts of the body. And so, um, you know, if you have had a flu-like illness and then you start getting a rash and you're concerned um, or you've uh, been in contact with people with monkeypox, really worth getting a hold of your provider, getting it checked out. Not every skin rash on, on a body needs an immediate evaluation, but if you fit into that flu and then rash, think about uh, getting that checked out. Another thing that's a way different than coronavirus, this is a very different virus, is it can take up to 21 days from exposure to when you start having your symptoms. And so, so a much longer time frame means it's harder to trace people back and find out you know, where they got it or how they got that. And then one last slide on monkeypox just for everybody. Well, what can I do to make sure I don't get monkeypox? Uh, number one is very, very, very small number of people are going to get it. Um, it, it, it can be spread as soon as from the time your symptoms start. So if you're around somebody with a flu, then great time to pull out your mask if you haven't been wearing it and, and wear it. Avoid close skin to skin contact, which we should be doing with people with influence as well. Uh, and it, particularly if people have a rash, uh, this is uh, always um, you know, transmitted from kissing, hugging, cuddling, having sex. There's 
there's been some confusion because uh, there's talk about the fact that it could be spread through respiratory secretions, which means saliva, what we uh, uh, nonchalantly in medicine call pooling of secretions, but it's not flying through the air or circulating in the air in the same way we know coronavirus, influenza, and other viruses do. So also though, you know, things that we do when we have a cold, um, don't use the same eating utensils, cups, plates, toothbrush, someone with monkeypox, that seems pretty obvious. And then also be aware though, that if you're handling bedding, um, sheets, you know, even putting them in the washing machine, you could potentially contract it if there are secretions there that adhere to the skin. So be aware of that. And, but again, that's another thing that washing, your frequent hand washing uh, can um, involve. Because of the long recovery time from the start of the flu to the questing over the viruses, people will be quarantined with this much, much longer. Could be three or even four weeks at the out, at the, on the outside end with this. And so it's a different approach to a very different disease, but it's in the news. We wanted to give you our update. Uh, use the CDC site to see what's happening with cases in New Mexico. And I think with that, I think that was my last real, oh no, there isn't. I have one more real slide. And that is on monkeypox. You know, we're not gonna be presenting on monkeypox every, uh, every month on this, but we wanted you to have this intro. There is a vaccine. New Mexico had zero supply of vaccine before we had cases. Now that we have cases, we're being shipped 362 doses of the vaccine. It's a two vaccine series. So that'll cover 181 patients who are basically the contacts of the people who've acquired monkeypox. We will be getting a lot more uh, in the coming weeks and particularly next month. And then uh, we are going to, uh, also there is treatment for this that's approved viral treatment for smallpox and monkeypox and that we're going to be admin we're arranging with the CDC to get those medications for the people who are infected. Some, some of our cases of our four cases have chosen treatment, one is deferred and one is thinking about it. And that's it. So Jody, I'm gonna turn it back to you and we'll go to the Q&A. Gino, uh, you should be unmuted. All righty, thank you, Dr. Scrace. I appreciate your time. Uh, my question is just regarding the uh, transmissions levels we've seen in uh, New Mexico. You mentioned there's been a lot of breakthrough cases with the BA.5 variant, and a lot of the state remains in either a medium or high transmission rate. Just curious, you mentioned a lot uh, wanting to like have people encouraged to be wearing their masks indoors. Uh, Dr. Fauci even said that he came back from having COVID for two weeks. Just curious what the Department of Health is considering next steps with this variant, since there are a lot of reinfections going on with it across the country. Is a mass mandate on the table? And what other steps are you guys considering to kind of negate this wave of infection? Um, you know, we're not having any discussions about mass mandates anymore. That was for the pandemic we had uh, two years ago, uh, not for the one we're having now. And I think, I think what we're considering is continuing to encourage all New Mexicans to do their part to prevent the spread of the virus. The simplest and easiest one is staying home if you're sick. Don't bring that virus, whichever one it is, to work. The second one really is, of course, vaccine. Uh, uh, a third one is treatment if you get sick. Fourth one, uh, mass. But if you're, if you're strictly talking about spread, 
then what we're really talking about is don't come to work sick. Don't go out if you're sick and interact with other people, be vaccinated and wear your own mask. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, but I think we're relying on New Mexicans to use their own good judgment to protect themselves and their families and, and not any specific direction at this point in time from the Department of Health. All right, thank you, Gino. Gino is, I believe, from KSFR Radio. And now we'll go to Julia Goldberg from the Santa Fe Reporter. Thank you, Jody. I have two quick questions. Hi, Dr. Grace. thanks for taking our questions. <laughs> My camera's not enabled, so. Um, Good to see you again. I'm grateful for that. Um, the CDC earlier this week released a report about the rise in drug-resistant infections during the pandemic for hospitals, a particular spike in nursing homes, things like salmonella and staph infections, TB, and a bunch of other things I am not familiar with and sound terrible, and a rise in maybe misprescribing of antibiotics. I'm just, and one thing that stuck with me was also a decline in the data for that because so many resources were being used for COVID data. I'm just wondering if that's on the health department's radar and something that you've either heard about or, or taking a look at. And my second question, I'll just ask them both now, is I'm just wondering if you think there'll be an impact here from the recent FDA decision to allow pharmacies to prescribe Paxlovid, um, and if that's kind of in the mix. Yeah, Julie, I have not gotten yet to that CDC report. Um, I think that uh, one thing that does happen that we've noticed with telemedicine is because you don't have the patient right there in front of you, it might be easier to prescribe an antibody because of that slight increase in uncertainty, particularly if it's over the phone. But I'll read that study and um, <clears throat> work with Jody to get back to you on our thoughts on that. I apologize. I'm not fully prepped for that one today. And then on the pharmacy um, ability to provide Paxlovid, this is something we're really excited about. Courtney Lovato is our DOH pharmacist. Absolutely outstanding. Already working with pharmacists to get them up to speed. Uh, there are some very um, strict requirements for pharmacists to prescribe. They have to have a complete access to the patient's medication list. They have to have complete access to the patient's laboratory results, which is what doctors have when they treat patients. Uh, you know, we have a strong recommendation that all prescriptions for Paxlovid be in the electronic medical record because there can be drug-drug interactions. But it's something we're excited about, something we're anxious to promote, something that uh, Courtney Lovato is already working really hard on to get the word out and work with pharmacists. And, and we're also working on interfaces to like, uh, you know, databases that are available within the state uh, and to get folks access to. Now, pharmacists should have a pretty good idea if the patient gets all their prescriptions at their pharmacy, what drugs they're on. Not always though, because sometimes people stop it and they, they tell their doctor, but not their pharmacist. But, uh, I think getting at the med, getting at the um, the laboratory results is going to be our biggest challenge. But as I mentioned, Courtney and others hard at work to get that to happen. And so our pharmacy team has really been, uh, and there's a there are a number of them. I work mainly with uh, Courtney and Leo, but they've really been superstars in New Mexico, getting the word out about Paxlovid and other treatments, <clears throat> driving up our number of treatments from week from what was early on like 50 to now 23 24 
hundred. And so we really think that treatment is our main way of preventing uh, too, you know, too many hospitalizations as this virus continues to mutate and continues to bob and weave and we continue to chase it. But we think that the treatment is a critical, critical factor to prevent hospitalizations. Uh, given that people still are gonna interact, gonna spend time together, the virus is gonna spread. That's just a given and we accept that. Alrighty, thank you, Julia. Next, we're gonna go to Jared from KUNM. So we just crossed 8,000 dead from COVID-19. The DOH's own internal assessment is that up to a third of New Mexicans are at risk of serious illness to COVID-19. You answered the first question by indicating NMDOH has no intention with the BA5 variant to do new messaging, different outreaches, different strategies. So it all begs the question to me, what is an acceptable level of transmission, people out of work sick, hospitalization, or mortality? What is the goal on COVID prevention for mm -hmm. NMDOH now? I think the cognitive dissonance people experience mainly comes from comparing 2020 to 2022. And that was that's why I was talking about the fact that I, I really believe we have two completely different, it's a completely different pandemic than it was then. So I don't experience the same cognitive dissonance because I think we've declared and are acting every day, focusing on hospitalizations and deaths. The death rate, as I mentioned, is slowly declining uh, with new variants. We're not seeing the same percentage of people dying from COVID, partly due to changes in the virus, we assume, partly due to um, things like vaccines and better masking and treatments and the like. I think an acceptable level of uh, people in the hospital is really no, no more than our hospital system can handle. But I think if you ask the hospital folks that, they would say a little bit less of than that. They need some breathing room. And so um, I think that that's, I think that, um, but we are really closely monitoring hospitalizations and deaths. And yeah, and I and thanks for bringing up our uh, 8,000, uh, eight, well, 8,006 death, deaths as of yesterday, because every one of those people, every one of those New Mexicans, you know, has a family, has coworkers, has friends, you know, there's an empty seat at the dinner table um, for those folks. And that does go all the way back uh, to 2020. That part hasn't changed, but we are actually quite reassured about the fact that the uh, percent of people um, who passed away from COVID at, at various stages from, you know, original to alpha to delta to early Omicron to current Omicron, it's a, it's a stair step going down in terms of mortality rates. And, and that's reassuring as well. I, I, but it does, it does really beg the question. I think in the end, we all have to do our part. We all have to protect ourselves and our uh, vulnerable family members from the disease and continue to do those things we know that, that work. So um, I think no death is acceptable, but, and I would prefer that the target be zero, but there also is a dynamic in society between freedom and, you know, and, and public health. And I think that New Mexico may have done a better job in, in managing um, 
the certain restrictions early in the pandemic, but we don't feel at the present time that there's a need to, uh, to reinforce those. Jody. All right, thank you, Jared. Um, next, we're gonna go to Garrison Wells. He's asking, it seems that like BA5 is taking off in other parts of the country. Is New Mexico underplaying the potential impact to residents or should the state take some steps before it hits hard here? Yeah, um, I think the state should take steps. It just depends on the definition of state. So um, I think everyone in the state of New Mexico should take steps to revisit their own strategy to think about the gatherings they go to and you know, with this very high case rate. And remember, the case rates we're reporting seem low, but that's only because they're a fraction of the total number of positive tests that we don't have because so many people are testing at home. We like that people are testing at home. But yeah, I think everyone in New Mexico should be taking steps, but uh, we're not seeing other states uh, imposing restrictions again. Uh, we're not seeing other countries who are about at the same place in the pandemic as we are imposing much in the way of restrictions. And I think uh, most other states, most other secretaries of health of other states, ministers of health and other titles in other countries are feeling like the tools we have right now to fight the pandemic are, are so good that um, overarching uh, government requirements aren't needed. So um, I think, um, yes, everyone in New Mexico should be careful and that's our best way to fight the uh, B5 wave, which I think we believe now is, uh, even though the percent of virus isolates that we get and sequencing that we do, will eventually get to 100% or close to it with BA5, the total case count is actually going down now. And hopefully data over the next couple of weeks will confirm that for us. Thank you. Next, we're gonna to go to Brianna Wilson with KOB4. Um, I just wanted to address um, a, a recent poll, uh, you know, Los, Sal Los Alamos was rated one of the healthiest counties in the U.S. Now it has the, you know, the second highest infection rate in the nation. So I'm just kind of wondering, is um, is the state keeping a, a closer eye on, on Los Alamos or, you know, what are the communities um, that have high, you know, the highest infection rates in our state that the state is keeping a close eye on? You know, one of the things that we know about this data is the less number of people you have the more variation there could be that isn't real. And so um, while we're seeing an uptick in cases in Los Alamos, certainly they, they have you know, just a very tiny fraction of the number of people in that county than, than we have, for example, in Bernalillo County, where we know in any given week that, that those numbers are accurate. Um, I'm hoping that people in the Los Alamos community are looking at that map that I showed earlier, seeing that Los Alamos County is red going to the scrolling up to the top of that CDC website that talks about indoor masking and talks about uh, social distancing and keeping those um, you know practices up and so I think that community has the resources they need to fight this it's um, you know all communities in New Mexico could do better when it comes to booster shots and getting those booster shots they could still get extra protection uh, from hospitalizations and, and deaths. But um, 
right at the present time, the hospital system in Los Alamos and Santa Fe isn't isn't overwhelmed. And, and so while we're seeing more cases, the main things we look at, which are hospitalizations and death, haven't spiked. And and I was noticing on on the state's dashboard that all of all of the counties are in red right now, which, which is a little different than the graphic that we saw at the beginning of, of the presentation. It's confusing, and I get confused. And uh, and I would show you this on the CDC website, except it takes a long time to update. And uh, people who still have their hands raised would probably get annoyed. But there are basically two maps that are there on that website. And there's a link to update the website to do one or the other. The map I showed you is community levels. And that is the map I showed you. And that is um, accurate and up to date. I believe from today or at least last night from the CDC. And that's the measure that takes into consideration the case rate and the number of hospital beds filled with COVID patients and the percent of hospital beds filled with COVID patients. But if it's any one of them is red, then you're red and or orange, sorry. And in this case, it's the case counts that are making it orange. And then there's another one called community transmission levels, and that's for hospitals to use to make decisions about things like visitors and quarantining and how long their employees have to stay out and come back and things like that. And so that one isn't all red either, but it's almost all red. It's, I think maybe, um, or orange or whatever it is. I think Ketron County might be yellow and there's a little teeny county on the East Coast of New Mexico uh, that's blue, but the rest of the state is red. And so there are two different maps, but if you, uh, that's how you resolve that discordance. And like I said, I'd love to show you, but I did it this morning and it took me about five minutes to get the maps to fully update. So uh, go on there and play around. If you have trouble, let Jody know and we can walk you through the steps offline here. No, it's no problem. Thank you. And I only have one more question because I do want to be respectful of the other reporters waiting. Um, I'm just wondering how far we are from treating COVID infections like any other illness, you know, like the cold and the flu without regular reporting and, and isolation requirements. Um, you know, that's a really good question. And we talk about it all the time. And I think what you're seeing the state do is gradually move to, you know, we're giving you those six numbers every day. But we used to give you like, I think it was 210 numbers every day, you know, with all the county level detail and everything every single day. And so we're gradually evolving to treat this more like a normal um, viral infection. There's two reasons we can't, and my, well, probably more than that, but one reason is that, you know, it hasn't really become seasonal yet. I mean, everyone's saying it's tending toward being seasonal, but we had a big you know, we, we keep getting these big runs of infections in the summer and normally respiratory viruses occur in the winter. So that hasn't quite panned out yet. And then the hospitalization rate and death rate, although dramatically dropping, still are well above influenza, at least right now. And so we, I think those are the two things I would look at if it got to the influenza level of uh, hospitalization or death rates, I think we'd probably be ready as a, as a state to move it into that category. Uh, next, we're going to go to Natalie, and she is with KRQE 13. 
according to the CDC's website, they estimate that only one in four COVID infections were reported throughout this pandemic. I was curious, how many unconfirmed cases do you estimate there are in New Mexico for every confirmed case that we're seeing? You know, I have a range because it's like we don't have the data to really know. Uh, you know, I always ask everybody who tells me they're COVID positive, and there's been a bunch of people lately, like what kind of test did you get? And, you know, I would say that about one out of six people say a home test. But I think the data that we have out there that isn't as good as I would like pegs that range between for every one PCR test, there's three to eight additional tests out there. And so um, we're just not sure. But I think that's a reasonable, a reasonable range. And four is in there. Uh, the CDC number of four is in there, and so they may have some better data than we do. So, so uh, I think that's I think that's a fair one. Sometimes I just multiply by ten and divide by two because that's faster for me, which would be five. Uh, you know, four. I multiply by ten and divide by two, which is four cases for every one PCR, and when you multiply by five. So, um, but I think that's a real part of what we're seeing now, and also kind of reassuring because even with the PCR tests, our hospitalization rates are low, our death rates are lower. If you add in that estimate, they become much, much lower. And that's good news. Thank you, Natalie. Next, we have Ryan Botel with the Albuquerque Journal. One kind of a technical question, is there a public health order that expires tomorrow related to like uh, masks in healthcare facilities and nursing homes. And I think there might be some other things like businesses have to report if they get an X certain amount of cases, but do you plan on extending that or could there be some, this order ending tomorrow? Yeah, no, you know, that public health order ends pretty much every month on the 15th. And so this year I plan my vacations around the public health order on the 15th and both July and June. and. And at the present time, uh, we don't plan to make any changes. I think we wanna see if we can get through the summer and uh, get more people immunized, but uh, there aren't any big changes under serious consideration. Our hospital facilities, nursing home facilities appreciate the fact that we still have that order in place. It helps them with their employees to say this is just a you know, requirement, I, actually in the case of hospitals, uh, the Center for Medicaid and uh, Medicare Services, CMS, also has that requirement in place. So ours is somewhat duplicative, but at the present time, uh, we don't have um, anything in line. We're beginning discussions about rapid responses, which kind of connects Ryan to your point about businesses, but that's one of those things where the meeting is being scheduled and we'll talk more about it and, and probably reevaluate the scale in which we do that. But I think the public health order uh, is uh, being written up uh, now to be a just an up, uh, a one month update to the one last month. Cool. And, and then real quickly, if you don't mind explaining in some detail earlier on, on one of your slides, uh, when you had the, the Omicron BA5 and another variant, you had said that they were, were both resistant to treatment in some effect. It just said yes. And you also said that you were hoping, you know, Paxlovid is a good, you know, tool moving forward. Is Paxlovid and some of the other treatments, um, are they successful against uh, this new variant? 
Yeah, that's. I thank you so much for asking that question because I, I should have thought of that as I was talking. But uh, the main treatment resistance we see are with the monoclonal antibodies, and it makes perfect sense because the monoclonal antibodies were designed to attach to a certain part of a certain variant and take it out of commission. And it makes sense that the virus itself, just through evolution, would move to another configuration that would evade that medicine that was specifically designed to knock off its parent, right? So that part makes sense. On the other hand, Paxlovid is a antiviral drug that we have no reason to believe the virus will evade. And the analogy I give is, you know, cold sores, herpes simplex one virus, we've been using acyclovir and some other relatives of acyclovir. Gosh, I've been using them for most of my career and they still work. And so they operate on a whole different mechanism around viral replication and, and the like. And so we're, I'm really counting on um, the fact that Paxlovid will be with us for a long time and really enable us to arrest that reproductive process in the virus, no matter how it evolves. Is it possible we could get a, you know, a, um, a variant, a mutation of the virus that could evade? I think it is, but I think it's pretty unlikely. I think the, the mechanism of action is what makes Paxlovid such a good option. And, and Molnupiravir as well, um, um, that also does that same um, interruption just doesn't reduce hospitalizations by quite as much. Uh, it's Jamie Prieto with NBC Telemundo. <laughs> I apologize if I might have missed this, but Dr. Scrooge, you mentioned it's a completely different pandemic and the virus keeps mutating and so do our vaccines. You know, they keep improving. So can we assume our current vaccines immunity? Are they working against BA4 and BA5 variants? We know some time has to pass in order to understand how the mutation works better, but... Is it too early to talk about a possible booster in the coming future that'll give more immunity against them? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I I, uh, I think you said the vaccines are getting better and better. And I wouldn't actually say that. I would say additional doses of the same vaccine we've had for a year and a half are providing additional protection against hospitalization and death. But I think if I spoke for Mike Edwards and Laura Parahone and other leaders at DOH and myself, for sure, if there's one thing we're frustrated with or maybe anxious about, or I'd say impatient is probably the best word, is we would really like to see a more rapid cycle time of development of new vaccines. I think sometime in the first couple months of uh, when the vaccine is available, we started talking about the fact that this is great. We've got this vaccine and everyone was asking, what's the next vaccine going to be and all that. And, you know, I still hope we get to that annual, you know, coronavirus vaccine like we have had for influenza for decades that is updated every year and more specific. So I'd like to go in to my primary care doctor in September when I see her and get a my new annual COVID vaccine that covers Omicron and you know a little Delta and a little bit of whatever's next. I, I think all ma uh, the mathematicians of the world are 
very scared that the next variant is going to be pi and that'll ruin mathematics forever. But because uh, pi comes after Omicron in the Greek alphabet. But, uh, you know, I think, I think what I would like to see is a more rapid cycle time for new vaccines that are specifically targeted to the newest variants. And in some press conference, probably a long time ago, I did point out though, that if you're a vaccine manufacturer and you wanna go after Omicron full force, and you let's just say you started in January of this year, it's gonna take you nine months. Remember it took nine months from the first you know, US broad infections to getting that vaccine in arms in December, 2020. And I don't know if Omicron will actually be a variant we'll be talking about in September at the rate things are going. And so that's a tough business decision to invest a lot of money in something that you won't have for nine months when, when things keep changing so rapidly. So I have a theory that there's an economic problem there, but I would welcome the day when I can get an annual shot that gets me through the winter, which is the day when Omicron's only occurring in the winter, not the summer, or even two if I had to take it, that was tailored to the most recent um, viruses. And that's why we see breakthrough cases, frankly, as the virus uh, couldn't infect people who were vaccinated, so it had to mutate in order to do that. And so we're seeing more of that now. So, um, and I think Jamie, you're the same person I talked to a couple of days ago, so, right? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So hello again. But that's my take on it. And uh, but I don't I don't think that's going to happen this fall for sure. But I'm hoping with more rapid. I think the solution to this actually is more rapid cycle time to develop the vaccine. And some of the older methods with eggs and all those things we used to use, they they can be developed more quickly, and which is what we do with influenza. So. So we'll see. Thank you, Jamie. We have Algernon Demacia from the Las Cruces Sun News. Just to return to something um, we've talked about before, and it was a little early, is um, so-called long COVID, the long-term complications, and how difficult that is to define and study. And I'm wondering if we've been able to improve our ability to get our hands around that for study purposes, and if we have any assessment of the impact on New Mexicans. When I talk to clinical colleagues, I'm getting a more consistent definition of what they're using for long COVID, which is persistent symptoms for three months with an additional month of symptoms. I don't know why they don't say four months, but that's you know like infectious disease experts and other people I talk to. I think we've nailed down the seriousness of this that you know up to 20% of people have some form of persistent symptoms and as many as half of them they're disabling, like life-changing, life-limiting symptoms. I think there's a number of theories out there about what's causing COVID. Uh, you actually still have the virus in you and it's at work and that's why you're having symptoms and the body hasn't killed it off or you had the, the virus in you and now you have immunity and it's that immune reaction that's causing the problem like other diseases like Lyme disease, which is you know, you get the infection, but it's the immune reaction that actually gives you um, uh, the chronic symptoms. Uh, hepatitis C uh, uh, could be either of those. And so 
Uh, I think we're getting closer, but these studies take a long time to design. And I'm hoping that um, I've, I've talked with folks at the university about how could we expand places for people to be evaluated for long COVID. I know there are some preliminary studies where people have looked at vaccines. Do those help long COVID? Obviously, people are thinking about the treatments. Like, for example, should, could Paxlovid help? It, well, it depends on what's causing it. If it, you still have virus in your system, like in your intestinal tract, or into some articles, then I think that giving people a trial of Paxlovid, probably longer than five days, but a longer trial, that might have real benefit. And I, and I think those are starting to kick off. But I, if I had, if what you're asking is, do we have any beta, better hard data? Uh, not, I have not seen the sort of stuff that I, I would make definitive recommendations to the, the patients I have who indeed have long COVID. But I hope we get there. And, you know, I think there's, if you just think about the economic consequences alone to let's just say 10% of people who had COVID, you know, severely or partially limited in their ability to go to work, do their jobs and, and uh, you know, feel good enough to live their lives, that's a really, really big deal. And so I'm, I'm hoping we see some more definitive research in the, in, the, uh, in the fall. Another thing I will say just real quickly is I think the community, the medical community learned something about how much premature publication of research was done during the first couple of years of the pandemic. And my sense is you're, we're not gonna see a lot of rush to market um, here's the miracle cure for long COVID papers like we saw for COVID itself. And I, I think that's a good thing. I think it means a longer wait, but when we do get the evidence, it'll be better evidence. And that will help me as a treating physician, particularly rather than just, you know, whatever's on the newswire today. COVID is out there, it's evolving, it's infecting people. We still need to be careful with the fact that it is really a different pandemic than it was two years ago. We have a whole slew of really, really effective tools. You know, I'm a geriatrician. I treat people for a lot of different illnesses and diseases. And, you know, most of the things I prescribe are not 89% effective. And so we've got some great tools for COVID. And thank you for keeping that word out there, publishing that, letting people know. And uh, look forward to talking with you again next month. You've been listening to the New Mexico Department of Health COVID-19 update recorded on Thursday. The full video may be seen on Facebook. Look for NMDOH.